Thanks, y'all. You're too kind. Thank you. Hey, everyone. How y'all doing? Hey, Sinclair. Um, how y'all doing? My name is Josh Williams. I'm the lead pastor here at the Elm City Vineyard Church. Have something embarrassing to tell you. Uh, this talk is going to continue our series on resurrected lives, and as Kiana shared last week, it's around the topic of sex. Around last year, that was an awkward thing, by the way. Um, around last year, we had planned this talk for May 14th. If you know anything about next week, Mother's Day, uh, we did not look at that calendar, so I'm glad that we just moved it just a week earlier. It's a little bit less awkward. Maybe it'll still be awkward, but a little bit less awkward. Jesus is never asked an earnest question about sex, gender, or sexuality in the Gospels. He's not. Strange but true. Jesus is only asked trick questions about matters of sex. That's what we see in the stories of his life. Teachers of the law asked him about divorce to test him. Jesus responds sincerely to this question, it seems. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus responds sincerely, the teachers do not. They have another trick question for him, this about Moses and certificates of divorce. That one continues on with more tricks. There's other stories like this too. This one later in the same Gospel of Matthew. The same day, some Sadducees, other religious teachers, came to Jesus, saying there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies childless, his brother shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. So if you didn't think the other one is a trick question or this, just wait to see how this one goes. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died childless, leaving the widow to his brother. The, the second did the same. So also the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection then, whose wife of the seven will she be? For all of them had married her. Not sure if you saw scriptures like a riddle book, right? But this feels like a riddle. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is God not of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astounded at his teaching. Jesus knows how to respond to tricks and traps, I guess. So that's it. That's the teaching. You know, the series is called Resurrected Lives, so that's the word for today. Uh, and the resurrection will be married or, you know, given in marriage. will be like angels, perhaps with bodies without sex difference. Seems less complicated sometimes than, you know, how we make it or, you know, what we struggle with or the divisions that we have in our culture. So that's all we need to know. That's the end. Worship team, can you? Okay, no, no, there's a little, there's a little bit more. Oh, someone was excited for that. I won't make any jokes about you for that. Just kidding. 
There's more to say, because I think this room doesn't just have trick questions, or maybe I should say doesn't only have trick questions. We have earnest questions as a body, earnest questions as individuals. And it sounds like Jesus has confidence that with the scriptures, the power of God, and with a living God, we can experience more than just religious folks who are heavy on the tricks and traps. Instead of what I think we're longing for, sincere, earnest efforts to engage God about sex, even personally for us. This longing is true, I take it, even if Jesus engaging his own context, we don't ever really see their questions. Our single savior has no recorded instance of people inquiring about his celibacy into his early 30s. Jesus, just want to ask you a question. I know it's a little personal, but what's going on with you? Like, are you on the apps? Like, just, just asking. Our single savior has no married disciple who's been traveling many weeks on the road and then on record asks, can I just go home, like, just, just for a break? Like, I just need some time away. We don't, we don't see that. Our single savior has no adulterous woman ask about a theology of godly dating after leaving a sinful lifestyle behind. We don't see that either. And our single savior doesn't have any recorded conversations with anyone about how polygamy and concubines make a biblical vision of sexuality quite complicated. In an earnest way, of course. Like that, that wouldn't be a trap question, just an earnest question. Jesus is a very earnest man, and there's no recorded earnest questions. What a shame. Truly. As someone that's led in this church and been a part of it since I was 22, and as someone that's been in some version of ministry since I was 18, don't talk to me about the 18 to 22. It was messy ministry, but I think it was still ministry, right? Um, I've heard many, many trick questions, and so many earnest ones, too. It's been a wonderful and frightful privilege over the years. I love God, but it's been vulnerable and tender and humbling to speak into matters so delicate when Jesus' words and his stories from Scripture have not been as direct, you could even say clear or voluminous, as let's say his take on wealth or money, like we covered last week, or some things we see in his habits, practices of healing or deliverance. And yet, I believe the kingdom of God is at hand, not in every area of our life, but our sex lives, but in this intimate place too. And of course, seeking first the kingdom of God impacts these delicate areas of our lives, even if we're simply left from Jesus with some strong teachings, responses to trick questions from our single savior. Even if we don't have tons of quotes from Jesus, we have a theology of resurrection, a practice of resurrection, as Kiana said last week about money. If we're not honest about death, we're not ready to embrace resurrection life. I think that's about anything and everything. We have to be honest about the earnest questions that we have not asked Jesus for fear of shame, condemnation, or isolation, or even confusion about how a word from Jesus on sex could be good. 
We have to confess the trick questions we have asked others, maybe in our frustration, in our pride, in our self-righteousness. We have to confess, no matter how hard it is to admit, how much easier it would be just to not say anything, the ways our sexuality has been marred by others through objectification, coercive deviousness, abuse, assault, rape. There is healing for us here. And there's healing for us as we share. We have to confess the ways we have made bad sexual choices ourselves, often trading the hope for a more whole intimacy, for momentary pleasure. There is forgiveness for us. We have to admit this death to step into a life of blessed consexual choices around sex and sexuality, not only consent with a partner, but consent and divine agreement with the God who blesses whole and holy bodies, whether abstinent, celibate, or sexually active in ways that honor God, and a God who blesses bodies and lives anywhere in between because God's abundant grace is in it all even in the mess. That's life. Resurrection is bizarre. And from Jesus' words, he does kind of lower the stakes. Not sure if that helps our room, but Jesus lowers the stakes a little bit. It takes a little bit of pressure off this tricky and sensitive topic. Because our resurrected life lets us know that sex is one facet of our lives. Not the only one, not a defining one, not the only defining one. And we know from that trick question about resurrection and Jesus' response that in the end of all things, maybe sex won't matter that much. We don't know. It's very different than an eschaton that's promised in Revelation where we're speaking in our native tongue, as various tribes and ethnicities, different peoples before God. I don't get that vibe exactly from like the resurrection passage. I get like angelic vibes. I don't know exactly what angelic vibes are, but that's what I'm getting. Sex matters for our resurrected lives. There's a few things we're going to talk about today that are hopefully going to just permeate the entire talk, and I hope they feel and seem good to you all. Because there's resurrection, this life after death, life that's powerful, love that's powerful, that means there's redeemed goodness. Redeemed goodness, maybe in what others see as bad or people who see God as irrelevant to something like sex. Resurrection means there's freedom, freedom from shame, freedom from condemnation. Resurrection means there's joy that feels like delight. And resurrection means that we are not alone, that we have a shepherd, we have the power of God, we have scriptures animated by the Spirit, and a living God who is with us. So before we continue, let's just pray, thanking God for all of that. We are people who have those things. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you be present here today? Holy Spirit, have your way. Have your way in the name of Jesus. We thank you, God, for the good words that are here. I pray, God, the words I say that are beneficial and pleasing to you, God, would you highlight them? And the words I say that aren't of you, would you just throw them away? Holy Spirit, help us all stay together here before you and with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. So where do we go from here? 
These teachings from Jesus, the gleanings from trick questions, the wisdom from God, the movement of the Spirit, it's what's guided me these last 15 years as I've tried to pastor folk and as I've humbly and gingerly shared pastoral thoughts on some of the most vulnerable questions that humans can ask. Some of these questions were asked in one-on-ones and small groups and home groups, Q&As of different kind, but I thought for today's talk, I'd let you peer into some of those times that I've had with folk, these questions that were asked in an earnest way, and some of what I shared, or at least like what uh, kind of, what I felt I was sharing from you know, scripture, from the thoughts that I feel like God gave me. Through those questions, just a few questions I'll highlight, we'll talk about goodness, we'll talk about freedom and joy and the shepherd that comes alongside us. As a community, that's trying to fill silences. I hope this fills silences with humble, clarifying, God-pleasing, human-dignifying speech. And I think that's a good start for what's going to be the first of more public teachings about sex. Not next week, don't worry, um, but more soon in 2023. We won't be able to talk about everything today, but I hope we'll talk about something that matters, that's healing, that's helpful. So one of the biggest earnest questions I get uh, come from non-Christians, and they'll be, you'll see kind of, there's different kinds of questions. Um, and this one is a simple one. Uh, church, y'all believe anything good about sex? Like anything, anything though. It just seems so negative. Like I think this can feel like a trick question. It's not, it's earnest. Like really y'all? It's just honest. And I get where folks are coming from, but I don't think it has to be that way. Just this last Thursday at home group, we were talking about sex. I told you, I think before, my home group, usually every year we, we talk about sex. Um, and unfortunately, I had a little bit of like an emergency situation, so I wasn't there when like it began. Like, thanks for some of my other co-leaders who held it down. I just hap happened to just be, you know, taking a call. I'm sorry. Sorry, co-leaders. And so then I come down to the group and I hear something. I hear these words, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will grasp its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. Just a choice quote. I won't say who in our group or which co-leader chose a lot more than that to read. Oh, what are we reading? We're reading the Bible, y'all. We're reading Song of Songs, this ancient love poem. That's what I, you know, came down to as I was off the call. I was like, oh. We, we went there, okay, okay. If you ever thought the Bible was boring or prudish or restrictive, get ready to rumble when you read that text. This is a, a, a two-part home group, and this is the first topic that we covered, the, the goodness of sex. We also used Genesis. You heard Jesus talk about some of this language uh, from what I shared earlier. Be fruitful and multiply. This sacred command, this honoring command. And my favorite moment at home group, no names, but my favorite moment at home group was when I was uh, split up with a prayer partner 
And this prayer partner was just looking, I'm going to use this iPad as a prop, I was just looking at the scripture. Like I was partnered with them, but they were just looking at the scripture. And I'm like, thank you. I'm like, well, we're partnering in prayer. We're, we're talking. He's looking at the scripture. It's like over and over again. I'm like, hey, like how, how was that? Or what do you want to pray about? Just looking at the scripture. And there was a comment he made. It doesn't say no. Like it, there's, there's no no here. Like it doesn't say no to something. And he's like, I just keep looking at the scripture. Like he just repeated that honestly, like, just over, like a few times. And he's like, Where, where's this stuff about waiting or that you can't or anything else like that? And I said, well, you know, the person was leading this did, you know, do some excerpts. There's this other line about like, do not awaken love before it's time. But when love is awakened through this wonderful covenant, these two lovers don't seem to wait for much. So many people can see Jesus following, Jesus following around sex only in its no, only in its not yet, or not quite, or almost, maybe just a plain fat no. And so much when this person, I think, knew God, you know, read the scriptures, when he held it in its hand, he just couldn't really believe it. I called this... Uh, foretaste, or this uh, illustration, like a, a foretaste of heaven. I guess not like actually heaven now, because we now know in resurrection, right? No sex and all that stuff. Uh, but maybe this effusive joy, right? This effusive delight. That's what we saw in a, as a picture in Song of Songs. But I think some covenantal marriages don't reflect the wildness of Song of Songs. Perhaps many don't. <laughs> Unfortunately, we bring shame into our marriages for those folks that have made that commitment. We bring our selfishness, our lack of honoring the other, their own needs, their own desires, our lack of sacrifice. And at times, this might seem strange, but at times I think we also bring in a spirit of lust, of, of taking something. Even though in marriage, we can be given to one another freely, but somehow there's still a warped taking that can happen. That's how we can show up, despite this like, very generous invitation. What did that mean for us you know, last Thursday? We were a mix of people, single, married, dating. I think it's important to see this positive vision, especially in scripture, for people to see the honoring of the other, the pursuit of the other, the mutuality, the desire, the deep physical expression of love. And it's amazing that this text operates as a way these beloveds are giving themselves to each other. But it also, in a bigger way of looking at it, acts as a metaphor for this larger story of God's love for us and the church. Remember, sometimes things are figured as Christ is this uh, bridegroom and the church is the bride. I think when we look at a text like that, part of what it does is it norms desire, longing, it gives a bigger and weirder story for God, between God and the church. And it gives more than a no. Don't awaken love before it's time, but there is a time one can long for. I think folks who are single can rejoice in that, can think about what does that mean that there's like a desire and longing that I can have. For folks dating, there's not only a godly no, there's a caution and hope for a godly yes. 
Don't awaken love before it's time because when love is awakened, there is pleasure and goodness and joy. And for married folks, there's a reminder. For some of us, can I say this in church? Like, y'all used to be really into each other. Like, you did. Okay, again, I'm not speaking to anyone in particular at all, right? It's a strong reminder of mutuality, of other-centered love, love that's self-sacrificial and always preferring its own way. It's not just a moral commitment, but it maps onto our sex lives. It increases pleasure, delight, and contentment. It's part of what this text invites us into. Sex is a good gift from God. Can we receive that even if we're recovering it as a gift from God after a time of not believing it or after being hurt somehow? Can we receive redemptive goodness in light of Jesus redeeming all things, restoring all things in light of the resurrection? Can we do that? Second question comes up in and outside of the church. It's this question of what do I do with so much shame? Shame from the past, shame in the present, shame even that has fear about the future. What do I do with so much shame? And I think sometimes if we're very churched and we have less relationships outside of the church, I think sometimes we wonder, is this like a Christian invention? Like you just said, the shame on the other side that people are using so we can like say, you have to obey this way, you can't do anything else. But I feel like when we talk to real folk, there's real things that come up where people say, no, there, there, there's tough stuff when you try to live out your life. There's tough stuff that can come up. Uh, Tina and I had this story of a friend that we were uh, connected with. She uh, is super confident, um, always seemed to be having a lot of fun, uh, just a great personality. And uh, she would tell us these stories about kind of times that she like, went out, different things. And uh, we always just you know, met her with a lot of joy, a lot of uh, cheer, and she was just a great friend to us. One time we got a call that was a little bit more urgent. Um, she was asking us to come to a bar that she was at. She was pretty sure someone had put something in her drink. And so we came both there and uh, connected with her, got her out of the situation, made sure that she was at home in a safe place. And after she had uh, kind of got to uh, a different place, felt a little bit more free to share, less, I think, scared, she shared, not just about that interaction, but about so many that for her, she described as empty relationships, risks that she wasn't really proud of taking. And this one particularly just made her seem to like kind of look at the record, say this hasn't been good. And in particular, she focused on language about how she felt, how she felt used, thrown away, not respected. There is a way that she was aware. And it wasn't shame that was like her own shame. It was almost things that were trying to stick or speak lies. We talked and prayed. I think she was grateful for that. And that was it. But it was an intervention on multiple fronts and an invitation just to see how empty some things can be 
at least for some folk that say, I, I think I want a better way. The things that bring about shame can range so widely. Sometimes it's a specific sexual mistake that was made that didn't align with values that someone has. Sometimes it's recognition that there weren't that many personal values or boundaries, but then there's this kind of like, almost like shameful lie. I should have known, like I should have been able to do something. Why didn't anyone tell me about this? Sometimes it's like habitual patterns of sin. And of course, it's always the shame of someone dehumanizing someone else through coercion, through power and violence. It's also shame that comes from bad teaching that can cause so much damage at the root. People who were told they weren't valuable if they didn't wait to have sex until marriage. People who were told that their sexual desires themselves, that they were a bad thing. For queer folk who were told that queer sexual desires and therefore their identities were inherently bad. Bad teaching that brings about shame. And there's a resurrected life, a God who is resurrected that resists that shame through the power of God. In conversation with folks around shame, I've usually thought about a scripture or two, something that demonstrates that this power of God actually has the ability to beat back death and shame. For people who know uh, scripture and been around the church, this is familiar, but sometimes people feel like it's new when it's pressed into a different context. And for people who don't know Jesus at all, there's almost something that's like, this is weird, Josh, like, thanks, sort of, but like, what does this mean? And I just try to tell them there's something protective about who Jesus is, and Jesus is wanting to protect you. Here's the, the verse. It's from Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Jesus says there's there, there's no need for shame or condemnation, I think, through the work of the Spirit. This is the writing of the Paul, but I feel like there's something about this in Christ reality, that there's no need for shame or condemnation anymore, because this work of resurrection is real. Jesus has set us free from something, from the law of sin and death, and this freedom allows us to walk newly with the Spirit, not to be wrapped up with shame from bad choices, people who've hurt us badly or bad teaching. This is a freedom from something. It's a freedom for us. It's a freedom for you. And you get to pick up a new story. You get to pick up a new kind of life. There's something that could have been attacking or defining or against. And there's freedom. And I think when a community, more than an individual life, more than an individual pastor, when a community steps up and says, in this place, in Christ, there is no shame or condemnation. What there is is an offer of freedom and a freedom that the Spirit of God I think, wants to partner with so badly to give us new hope and new possibilities, a new way. People can know the power of God and be set free because any mistake doesn't define us. Any abuser doesn't define us. Any bad teaching doesn't define us. Christ defines us. And Christ chooses to make that personal on the cross. 
so all would know this is where my sin and shame went. Next, any other haters to deal with? Give me that freedom so I can walk in the spirit, discerning which way I should go. This is good news. This is the news of the resurrection. Jesus died for us to truly be free. And resurrection lets us know we're free from death and free from shame. What would it look like for that shame not to stick to us anymore? That's what I want to press into you for the rest of our time. What would it look like for that shame not to stick to us anymore? What would it mean? Because I feel like that's the invitation that the Lord wants to highlight today. There's strong teachings that Jesus gives, teachings about uh, not committing adultery, even changing the definition almost, to say there's something even more that we can see, a way that our hearts can be warped in the way that we take, in the way that we seize, in the way that other people do that to us. Sometimes I've just been courageous enough to ask in conversation, is that something you felt, that someone's taken something, or that you felt, like, seized in some way? And it's surprising when you ask it that, kind of forwardly, what people are willing to share. That like Jesus almost has his finger on something and in changing this kind of closeness between what's a wrong moral choice you might make, which I think makes all of us feel a lot of shame, to what's a way that you felt seized, taken, or you've done that same thing to others. Jesus gets a little closer, a little more than skin deep. And I think it's an invitation for us to do a few things. One is to, to recognize that work of the Spirit that Romans talks about. That's the same Spirit that wants to free us from condemnation. The same Spirit that wants to free us from shame. And sometimes our focus on a word that's become captivating, a memory that's been captivating, the thing that's causing the shame, God wants that to be washed away. I mentioned at the beginning earnest questions that we're asking God. And I want you to think right now of maybe one or a few you have. What are earnest questions that you have? And how would a freedom and a freeing from shame help you engage with the Lord and not get stuck? Maybe by sin or the work of death or what it says happens with the law without the cross and without freedom? What are your earnest questions for Jesus?
You don't have to say them out loud, but I want to just give you a few seconds to, to pray through them. There's something that the Lord wants. There's freedom from shame, but also there's this word about a shepherd, a shepherd who would speak to you personally, would guide you in the things going on in your life. And I found that folks that are assaulted by shame, who've been given bad teaching, who feel like in themselves they've been told they're wrong, I feel like there is a work of freedom that the Lord wants to do to shepherd. And there's something we have to do with one another to recover that. This is where I think there can be so many tricks and traps with certain ways we frame questions. You know, I've been blessed talking to the queer community at ECV in ways that one of the things that we shared together was the way that tricks and traps can make these questions uh, so twisted. And I know that there's different kinds of disagreement in this community about topics of sex and sexuality, but there's an invitation I want us to have today, which is what would it mean if we invited everyone to be free from a kind of shame that's often our starting place for some of the hardest issues that we talk about, the hardest issues that we're trying to pray through, the hardest issues in our community that we're trying to build bridges around. What if we prayed for a freedom from shame? Because as I've listened to this community, so many of the origin stories start with shame. What someone was called, how someone was treated, a teaching that didn't give any room for someone to be a beloved creation of God apart from actions. It just started with the condemnation. And people's affiliation with communities like that, it started there. And people said, if that's where it starts, I'm gonna react against that. And I think there's something better that we have community than shame or reaction from shame. But it's that sincere engagement with the shepherd. The same shepherd that told us what? That the power of God and the scriptures, that that's what these people that are trying to trick and trap didn't know. What if we could recover that by being free of shame ourselves and having God secure for us a shepherd who would guide us through the scriptures, a shepherd who would guide us into the power of God, a shepherd that at the end of that passage it says is living and active. Could we do that? Knowing disagreement I think is still part of that journey. Holding on to your convictions is still part of that journey. But at least we don't start and stop with shame. Do y'all hear me? We don't start and stop with shame. We're free. In our freedom, I don't think there's a perfect articulation of something that we're just going to find right here, but at least we're not only a reaction. We're more than a reaction. We're people under the care of Jesus. I want to invite the worship team to come up. 
Because I, I want us to be invited deeper in to freedom from shame. It's one of the first things that maybe we'll do in a new season. Something that I hope gives us new possibilities. Maybe not clearly new answers. And again, I don't think this is about uh, saying one thing or the other, making us all agree on one thing. I just think being freed from shame actually makes us like humans in a new way. And that makes us a community that Jesus can lead in a different way. I'm struck by a teaching we all know, but I think maybe we should go back to, especially in times that are a place where we get stuck, which is this trap and trick I didn't mention. It's the story from John 8 where this woman's almost stoned. And that's a horrible story because they say, hey, we found this woman you know, caught in the very act of adultery. And what does that mean? They've set her up, right, to be in the very act of adultery. And then Jesus does something. He kind of disturbs the environment. He does something different. He just gets down and starts writing. We don't really know what he's doing. But it was almost like a disruption because the thing that comes to us so naturally is shame. It was almost like he was disrupting from that experience. But then he says something. He says, to the one that does not have sin, would you cast the first stone? And one by one, people leave. Maybe they're thinking about a time where they were caught, where they were trapped, where they were tricked. And all of a sudden, those bad teachers, that bad teaching, the shame that maybe was personified by those folk, they're gone. And who is this woman left with? Jesus, a shepherd. Say, woman, do I condemn you? gathers her up, go and sin no more. That's our savior, that's our shepherd. So many questions, so much to explore, so much wisdom we still need, but we might know the most important thing, that we have access to that shepherd, and we can be free from those who would wanna to condemn, to shame, to bring guilt to bear. So anyone, anyone at all that wants to be free of this kind of shame. It could be in this area that we've been talking about. It could be another one. I want to invite you to stand up. I'm going to pray for everyone, but there's something responsive about that. There's something healing about that. And we get to do that in community together to say that shame is something that we don't want to be a voice and to have authority. So you might need to take time to think about it to see if your earnest question matches up at all. And again, I'll pray no matter what. But I think there's spiritual power, the power of God, the power we see in the scriptures that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And there's something new that the Lord wants to do. So let me pray. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come? Help us respond to this offer of grace, this offer of generosity. Make our community one that isn't defined 
by its most negative experience. May the most sensitive things we could be talking about not start in places of shame or guilt or condemnation, but give us an experience of beloved humanity that can interrupt, interrupt these other ways we've been attacked and harassed, made helpless. Bring your honor to us, Lord, not for anything we've done, but just by being your kids, by being human. And would you wipe off anything else? And God, for the sin that we have been entangled with, we say, Lord, forgive us and cleanse us and show us your new way. For the ways we've been sinned against, Lord, even if we can't muster up forgiveness. Lord, we as a community say, give us a desire to forgive and even forgive those who have wronged us and hurt us. Would you be the one to make us beautiful and whole? God, don't put that pressure on ourselves. Would you be the one to do it?